And beginning next week, we're starting what I would call a series within the series. Uh, as we go through chapter 13, we're going to spend four, maybe five weeks um, in a series I'm calling the working title. Don't hold me to this, but the, the working title is Signs of the Times. And if you know what that is, if you've ever heard that expression, you know what this is coming next, right? You know what's on the horizon in the Gospel of Mark and, and what the next few weeks we'll be talking about. That's biblical prophecy, what Jesus tells us we can expect in the last days. And church, we're there. Amen? I mean, we look around. I saw today someone sent me a message, uh, a picture of our White House and the main flag flying draped over the White House is the pride flag. And I thought, you know, that's what you do when a nation has been conquered. You fly a different flag over the capital of a nation. You let them know who's in control. And that sends all the message we need to hear on that. Calvin, could you turn this down just a little bit, please? Get a little feedback. As you turn to Mark 12... Um, Real quick, on that whole topic of, of living in the last days, we know that there will be those who chase after other things, who follow false religions and that sort of nature. One thing this past week, somebody is almost every day asked me if I've watched the new Hillsong documentary. I knew Hillsong was bad news in 2007. Okay, I, I've known that for a long time. I don't need to watch the latest documentary exposing them. Um, they asked me if I watched the the Duggar family documentary, if you've heard about this, and that's very interesting. Uh, I did watch that. Um, and one of the things that came up is something you, you've probably heard recently or you've seen in, the, in modern Christianity, this talk of deconstruction. Uh, many people have talked about their deconstructing. Many famous or at least formerly famous Christian celebrities have deconstructed their faith. I think of the band Gunger, for example. They didn't feel like uh, the church was doing enough for them and things like this, so they deconstructed. Um, Kevin Max, or as I like to call him, the other white guy in DC Talk, uh, he deconstructed and is no longer a Christian. And some of you from the, who grew up in the 80s and 90s, you might remember a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. The author of that was a man named Joshua Harris, and he deconstructed himself right out of the church and out of his own marriage. What this means is they are taking their faith and they are stripping it down and asking the question, what is it I really believe and why do I believe that? Now, that's not a bad thing, necessarily. Some have said Martin Luther was a great deconstructionist. And, but the problem is Luther did it in the scope of Scripture. And when we deconstruct, it's not through the lens of culture. It's not through the Jesus that I want, but the Jesus that he is. It's not through this, this sphere of what I think church should be like. But that's so often what it becomes. Many times when you talk to people, they've, they've created this, this little micro-social group called exvangelicals. People who've left the church as they've deconstructed. And if you've looked at the numbers, if you've seen a Barna study in the past 20 years, or, or paid attention to Ed Stetzer and guys like that, you've noticed there is a trend in people leaving the church. And they're doing this in, in, in waves. And many of that is because they are deconstructing. They're going back and saying, what is it I believe? Why do I believe this? 
And there's very little guidance in the church as to how to do that appropriately. Many of them are doing this because they've been sold a false gospel. Come to Jesus and all your dreams will come true. Come to Jesus and life will get easy. That is never Jesus' message. In fact, he says quite the opposite. We'll see that in the coming weeks. Sometimes they deconstruct because they don't understand Christianity at all. It was always a social thing for them. In fact, if you've ever if you ever take time and listen to the Gungers deconstruction testimony, it's exactly what it was. They, they I mean you you question were they ever saved? Did they ever have a relationship with Jesus? Because it sounds like they never knew or understood the gospel at all. And some deconstruct because they are a modern day Demas. If you're familiar with that from Paul's writings, he talks about Demas who left him because he loved this world. And if we're honest, that's what it really amounts to. They love the world more than they love Christ. But there's this fourth option, and that's the one we're going to tackle in our text today. The one that Jesus spoke very much to. And he, these are people who are victims of what I have called in the, in the message today, they're victims of toxic religion. If you will stand with me, we're going to read the text. And it begins in verse 35. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said it in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who want to walk around in long robes and want respectful greetings in the marketplace and best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. Long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two lepta, which amount to a quadrant. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those putting money into the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. You may be seated this morning. That's the word of God. That's not the word of Jeff. And many people are victims of people like the scribes. And they leave the church. And it's those people that we should go after. It's those people who are hurt, who are wounded, who we should come alongside and say, hey, let's get you the real gospel. Let's get you the truth. Let's make sure you understand what exactly it is you're giving up. But there are also those who deconstruct, who leave the church, because they just don't like the true hard sayings of Jesus. And to those people, we see Jesus address them, actually in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6. He tells everybody who's following him the cost of being a disciple. He says, you've got to eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And what he's really saying there is, you've got to be willing to go where I go and do what I've done and be, be a victim of society the way I was. Be willing to suffer the way I did. And as a result, John tells us, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
That's not toxic religion, that's truth. Some people get the two confused. It's like I, I saw this cartoon earlier this week where Freddy from Scooby-Doo has the villain in front of him and is, he's wearing the monster mask and he says, the church was so mean to me. And he pulls off the mask and the real identity is, well, they wouldn't affirm my sin. That's what a lot of times happens. And if you notice, if you study that passage in John 6, Jesus doesn't chase those people. He doesn't go and find them. We say, well, he, he will leave the 99 and go after the one unless the one leaves because they reject him and reject his teaching and reject the truth in doing so. That's not toxic religion. That's a toxic person leaving the faith. Toxic religion, I've titled this message today, The Cost of Toxic Religion. Toxic religion, if we're to be true about it, we have to be. Because if all places, we in the church, the true church should be calling it out for what it is. Amen? We should be able to identify it. Because we don't want it in our church. We don't want it in our family. We don't want it in this building. We don't want it amongst the believers we love and interact with daily. Or regularly at least, if not daily. But toxic religion focuses on man. It focuses on selfishness and and self-worth and things of that nature to build up man but to build our faith on what elevates christ that's what brings life so if you're taking notes this morning you may want to write this down toxic religion focuses on man but to build our faith we are to build our faith on what elevates christ because that's what brings life now some of you have heard me say religion's not always necessarily a bad thing I have a good friend. In fact, he was a mentor to me for a long time. He used to love to say, I don't want religion. I want relationship. And every time it was like someone would poke me with a thumbtack when he would say that. It, it irked me. So finally, I, I took him aside. We had coffee one day and I said, I need you to define exactly what it is you mean when you say that. He says, well, I'm all about a relationship with Jesus. That, that should go without saying, Jeff. You should know this. We're about relationship with him, not bogged down by religion. I said, describe your relationship with Jesus. And he says, well, I pray every day. I, I, I kind of try to get alone with him, and I, I try to fast sometimes. I read my Bible. I said, you realize those are religious things. There has to be a healthy balance between the two. Because if religion becomes routine, then the religion becomes about pleasing a person, doesn't it? Pleasing ourselves. And religion is, is about making a person happy. And when it becomes about works and it becomes about pleasing others and even making ourselves feel good, that's when it starts to become toxic. But if the religion builds into the relationship we have with Christ and draws us closer to Christ, well, that's what we should live for. That's what we should work towards. And we should have works. James tells us faith without works is dead. We don't have works to be saved, but because we are saved, we do have works in our life, evidence of salvation, fruit of the Holy Spirit, as Paul would describe them. The picture Jesus is painting in this text today is that the toxicity of the legalistic scribes the religion they would push it's man-centered 
It's self-centered. But for the believer, for the follower of Christ, our, our religion is building that relationship we have with Him. Elevating Him. He is our God. He is who we worship. He is our King. He is our Lord. See, many people want Jesus to be their buddy. Many, many people want Jesus to even be their Savior. But for Him to be Lord means He rules over your life. And we don't necessarily like that. But that's what the relationship should lead to. Amen? Okay, everybody's still awake. Good. All right. Verse 35. Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, you have to remember, this is the same day as we've witnessed throughout all of chapter 12. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the chief priests came. They grilled Jesus about his authority. And then the Pharisees teamed up with the unlikely Herodians. They were the, the weird tag team that came to Jesus. And then the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in an afterlife. They came to Jesus and they grilled him. And finally a lone scribe comes to Jesus. And, and we said last week it's possible that he even had a sincere heart. That he wanted to learn. And so Jesus begins. He begins to talk about these people. He begins to talk about the scribes. He begins to kind of pick on them. As he's teaching. In fact, teaching and preaching, that's why Jesus came to Jerusalem this day. He hasn't been able to. He keeps getting interrupted. But that's the whole purpose Jesus said he came to earth, was to preach and teach so that people knew the truth before he died as an atonement for our sin. He says it way back in chapter 1, if you recall, Jesus links up with the disciples. He comes to Capernaum. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. The whole area hears about this so they wait till the sun goes down because it's a sabbath day and then they fill up peter's house to the point hardly anybody can get in or out and he heals everybody who comes in front of him but then jesus does something after everyone falls asleep he slips away to pray by himself and peter gathers a little posse together and they go and they find him they say jesus hey you need to come back and i'm, I'm paraphrasing here but he's they say you need to come back there's more people to be healed and you know what Jesus says? He says, let us go somewhere else. I love that. I really do. Because you know what that means? I don't get to boss Jesus around. I don't get to try and manipulate him. I don't get to try and get him to come and do what I want him to do. Jesus is about what Jesus wants. And he says, let us go somewhere else so that I may preach there also for that is what I came for. So many times we want Jesus to come and give us signs and wonders and miracles, but that's not why he came. He came to teach us the truth, and the truth shall set us free. Amen? It's what draws us closer to him. Isn't it interesting that in all the Gospels, the only people who ask for signs and wonders and things like that are the Pharisees and Herod? I wouldn't want to be grouped with those guys. They're kind of considered the bad guys. And so Jesus, he asked the crowd, he says to them, how is it the scribes say? Now remember, he did just talk about the, the scribes. He talked to a scribe, an independent thinker, a guy who had stepped forward. But the scribes in general were not like that. They relied on the rabbis. They would study scripture for themselves, but the truth of scripture, they, they tried to get it from a third party. They tried to understand it 
from other sources, and they would not themselves investigate or study or try to understand the hard parts of the Bible. That's one reason I, I love expository preaching and, and why I've tried to change my preaching style to do this more, because it forces us to get into the hard parts of the Bible. How many sermons do you often hear on the Sadducees? We had to cover it because we were going verse by verse. And that sheds light on everything that follows, doesn't it? So we, we cover the hard things. That's why it's vital to the church. Because in true Christian faith, the scriptures are not ignored. But in toxic religion, it's there where the hard parts are left out. I don't, I don't, know, how, I don't know how to answer that question, so let's just ignore that part of the Bible. I've heard preachers say that. I, I, I'll get back to you on that, then you never hear a word. That's what happens because we don't want to investigate it. We don't want to grow. We don't want to learn. But that's what we must do. Otherwise, we fall into the camp of the scribes. Jesus said, how can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? And we need to back up just a second here and understand the culture around the scribes, what they were like and what they were doing. Okay, Christ, by the way, if the Christ has come, that's Greek, Christos. Or the Hebrew equivalent would be where we call the Messiah, Meshiach. And he, it means the anointed one. And Jesus is asking, how can that person, that anointed one, how can that person be called the son of David? What he is really asking here is why the scribes only referred to him as the son of David. Because in the scribe mindset, he was only a man. He was just a descendant of King David. Now, that's a good lineage, if you know your Bible. King David's kind of a big shot, right? He's kind of one of those big guys we know about. Killed a giant, led the country, united the kingdom, all that stuff. A lot of good stories about that David. So he's got a good pedigree, this Messiah, this Christ. But he's still just a man, as far as the scribes would have been concerned. And Jesus, in his ministry who has been called the son of David prior to healing a blind man in the Bible, the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, the only person who heals the blind is God. So Jesus has repeatedly shown signs of his divinity, of his divine nature. And so he's try taking this and he's, he's proving this wrong. In fact, for this statement, saying that he is on level with God the Father, for this they want to stone him at times. For this they want to throw him off a cliff. And for this they will want to eventually crucify him. If the Messiah is just a man, follow their thought process. If he's just a man, they can control him. They can lead him. They can get to him, manipulate him, and so on. You see, even... The scribes were victims of their own toxic religion because it was causing them to be selfish and reject Christ for who he truly was. We go on in verse 36. David himself said, In the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 here. Now how many of you know when you look at the Psalms, many of them say a Psalm of David before it even gets to verse 1. You ever notice that? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, a few of you are still awake. Good, awesome. It's summertime, so if you take a nap, it's all right. We understand. Please don't take a nap while I'm preaching. 
I'm just going to say it. That would, I would cry. No, I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't cry. But the authorship of Psalm 110 is very important because everything Jesus is going to say moving forward hinges on the Davidic authorship. Now, we know Psalms had other authors, right? The sons of Korah. What Pastor Steve a couple of weeks ago pointed out, Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses. And it's the only Psalm that is. Psalm 91, some people say it might be written by Moses. It might be written by David. They're not sure. But this Psalm is important because it's written by David and it's foundational to the Christian faith. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter's going to quote this on the day of Pentecost. The writer of Hebrews is going to quote this in the very first few lines of his letter. David said this, Jesus quotes it, and he singles out the scribes who should have caught it. Because the scribes studied all the Old Testament. He doesn't pick on the Sadducees, if you notice that. Because the Sadducees only cared about what? The law, the Torah, the first five books. They wouldn't care about the Psalms. The scribes, though, they were experts in this. They should have seen it. They should have brought it to light long before. And notice he says this, David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, the NLT reads, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What, what Jesus is saying is that what David said was not just David's words. It was the very word of the living God. That he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He didn't do automatic writing or something demonic like that where he went into a trance. No, he was carried along. He was led by the Spirit as he pinned those words. And that's why Paul says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you understand what you believe about the sufficiency, I'm sorry, about the inspiration of Scripture dictates how you view the sufficiency of Scripture? If you don't believe that God himself inspired this word, and that's enough, you're always going to want something extra to add to it. You're always going to be trying to pile something on top of it. Either scripture is the final authority in our theology and what we believe about God, or we have no real belief about the God of the Bible. I, I'm going to... Uh, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to step aside for a second. This is what I fell into in Bible college. I don't share this very often, but I got sucked into the lost books of the Bible. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but they were never lost. They were just trash. So they didn't include them in the biblical canon. And I had a professor who loved me, genuinely cared about me. He saw my potential. And one day we were debating this back and forth. And I said, well, you don't know. You weren't there. You know, you don't, how do you know what books are inspired and what books aren't? And he, in a sense, he grabbed me by the collar and he said, Jeff, either scripture is sufficient and it's inspired by God or go read Superman comics and preach from those. Because they have a good message too. But they're not from God. Point was received. It changed my life. Because Scripture is either the Word of God or it's not. And if it's not, 
then we're off the beaten path. We're off, we're off doing chasing butterflies and tinfoil. We're not following the word of the living God as he sends us this message to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That's what David also writes. You see, toxic religion only understands scripture as long as it feeds emotion, as it feeds tradition, as it feeds our selfish desires. But in the true faith, our, the scripture of God is sufficient for salvation and it's meant to be understood. It's meant to be studied. It's meant to be lived. Amen? All right, still awake. So Jesus is making it clear to this crowd that scripture is meant to be clear. And it, it clearly says that the Messiah, they understood Psalm 110 to be a messianic text. If that's the case, then there's something about the Messiah that is divine. There's something that is godly about him. You see, the psalm says, Lord, and if you go back in the, in the Old Testament, it's got those all capital letters, which that means what? Remember? Anybody? Yahweh. Thank you, Georgette. Somebody's awake this morning. She had her coffee. Yahweh is the name of God. So, so he says in the Hebrew here that the Lord, Yahweh, that's the name of God, said to my Lord, that's the Hebrew word Adonai, and it means this, that's the supreme title for Yahweh God in the Old Testament. It means sovereign one. So Yahweh said to our sovereign one, is he talking to himself? He's talking to the second person in the Trinity. Because while our God is one, he is a God in three persons, and even the Old Testament testifies to this. And so what Jesus is saying is that what David was saying is that the God of the universe, Yahweh, said to the Sovereign One, i.e. Himself, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, He says, sit at my right hand. He's saying the scribes should understand this. This is proving the divinity of the Messiah. And we can look at this as a prophetic statement, and it is, because we know that Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of the, of the power of God. That's what Luke twenty two sixty nine 69 tells us. And the writer of Hebrews is going to confirm that in Hebrews 8. Paul's going to confirm that in Ephesians 1. But we also know that it's referring to Jesus as the Messiah who will ascend to that place. And Stephen will see him as he's being slaughtered in Acts chapter 7. The message is very clear. The Messiah, the Christ, is standing before them this day. And he's saying, don't you understand that the scriptures testify to the fact that the Messiah is divine. And if that's the case, then Jesus himself was the Son of God. And if he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, they need to get into a right relationship with him. Because remember what he told the, the scribe last week. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And this is what would bring him, this truth would be what would bring him into the kingdom of God. See, the scribes understood this to be a messianic text, but they refused to acknowledge the Messiah as God in human form. Because that's what toxic religion does. It focuses on man, not on God, not on the life-giving truth of Christ. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. David calls him Lord, and then we go back. Well, how is that possible? Because the Messiah is more 
than just a physical descendant of David. He's greater than David. He's divine. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I like the way the, the LSB and the King James and the NASB translate that. It's not His one and only Son. It's His begotten. It means He is of the same substance as the Father. He is divine. Mormons believe Jesus is the Son of God. It doesn't make them saved. They have a totally different definition of that. We learned that when Santiago was here. But the point that John is making in John 3.16, the point Jesus is making in our text today, is that when that baby was born and put in that manger on that first Christmas, he was God. And he is God and will always be God. And these people are listening to Jesus and they learn that and they hear that for the first time and it's a delight to them. They learn it gladly. The original Greek is hideos. And it means they heard him with pleasure. They heard him with delight. Because you know what's happening in this moment is Jesus, God incarnate, is speaking God's word to them. And it came alive. And they understood probably for the first time to them a new teaching, but it was as old as Psalm 110 itself. The Messiah is the Son of God. The Messiah is God in human flesh. The hypostatic union is Calvin's favorite word for it. That He's the God-man. He's 100% God, 100% man. And in true Christian faith, we understand that. It leads us deeper into a better and, and, and higher relationship with Christ. Whereas toxic religion only offers more of that religion, man-centered, man-elevating, where the doctrine of Christ begins to fade. We go to verse 38 and 39. It says, And in his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. Who want to walk around in long robes and want respectful greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. And we're going to stop there for a moment. He says, beware the scribes. So we've talked about the word beware before. The Greek word is blepo. But, and that's a fun word. It sounds fun, right? Kind of sounds like a Sesame Street word. Blepo. But it really, in the tense that he's using it here, he's not saying be aware. He's saying cautiously observe. Watch them. See their lifestyle. These were the religious leaders, were they not? So we should be able to see their lifestyle. This is one reason so many pastors are, are cynical when it comes to the megachurch guys you see on TV. You don't get to see their lifestyle. You don't see how they operate in their community. You don't get to see how they operate in their home. So they're not held to any standard. They may pretend to be pious, they may pretend to be poor, and drive a Corvette, and you'd never know, right? I, nothing against driving a Corvette, if you have one. They're nice cars. I, I don't drive one myself. Uh, I am not that kind of pastor. But if anybody wants to donate to the Pastor Corvette Fund, I'm all ears. No, um, we are to watch our religious leadership. We're to observe them. We're to see how they deal with their wife. One, one man once said, uh, I can't remember who said it exactly, but if a man treats his wife poorly, I don't care what he says about Jesus. 
And that's true. What's the fruit of their life? Where's the fruit of the Spirit? That's why Paul talks about this in, in Galatians. He tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Watch the scribes, because we watch all religious leaders. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what a, a good pastor, a good leader should want to do. But watch the scribes, because they are perfect examples of toxic religion. And they love the glamour of the life. They love to be in control. They love to be recognized as a religious leader. He said they like to walk around in long robes. There's two ways to view this historically. Uh, some believe that they would put on prayer shawls, that most people would wear a prayer shawl that just went down to their shoulders, not the scribes. They would wear it all the way down to their ankles, if not to the floor, to show how holy and how pious and how much they love to pray. The other way of looking at it is their robes would have symbols sewn into them to show their education and thus their authority. Imagine if you've ever been to a college graduation, the guy with the PhD has different stripes than the guy with just the master's degree. And the guy, the dean usually wears a funnier hat, right? Well, imagine walking around town, say we're just going downtown to Lisbon, and you see three guys walk out of a store on August 15th wearing graduation gowns, and they act offended because you didn't pay attention or notice. That's what the scribes were like. Pay attention. Acknowledge their authority. Acknowledge their intelligence, their learning. And they like to be called out for these things. They liked when people acknowledge this. And I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's nice when people recognize you as a pastor or a spiritual leader. That's, that's nice. But for some, it can become intoxicating. There are those who want that REV in front of their name because they feel like it gives them some kind of extra authority or extra power over people or something. A good friend of mine has a, a lady in his church. He called me up and he said, uh, have you ever helped someone get uh, credentialed? Well, yes and no. I said, kind of. Help people fill out the application. He said, there's a lady in my church who wants to be credentialed really bad. I was, oh, is she called the ministry? Does she want a pastor? Because I know my friend is kind of a, women shouldn't be pastors kind of guy. And so I thought that was interesting. And he says, well, no, she doesn't want a pastor at all. She just wants a pay raise. Because she's a counselor, if she gets REV, reverend, in front of her name, she can get an extra 15 bucks a week or something like that. Uh, don't help her, that's what I said. We, we have plenty of credentialed ministers. We don't need one more who's not going to actually minister. But people do this. There are those who want the authority of the pastor, who want the authority of the deacon, and they like the title, but when they finally get it, it turns out to be something totally they didn't want. Something they're not called to handle. Something they're not prepared for. And there is precedent for showing respect to our leaders. Hebrews tells us, obey your leaders and submit to them. But a lot of people, in my position as a pastor, they like to just put a period there and say, full stop, you got to listen to me, I'm the pastor. But that's not the text. What's, what's the key? Context, right? So what, what's he go on and say? He says, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
Sometimes, Pastor, you preach this way, and I don't like it. Sometimes you, you say this, and that made me uncomfortable. Sometimes you quoted this verse, and, and I, didn't, I didn't think that fit, but it kind of hit me kind of hard. Good. I've said this before. Nothing scares me more than having a millstone tied around my neck one day because I didn't pastor faithfully. I didn't preach the word thoroughly, and I, I hurt the flock. In Ezekiel 34, God says, You have grown fat off the sheep. You've taken advantage of the people. I don't want that ever said about me and my ministry. You notice the writer goes on. He says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. There is precedent for taking care of your pastor and showing respect. Now, notice he doesn't say, make sure you call them pastor. Make sure you feed his ego and call him bishop, right, or elder. Make sure Dale gets called Deacon Dale, because he, he loves that right, as a board member, or Joel, as Deacon Joel. We, we don't really do that here. Jesus said the scribes like those things. The scribes like the, the greetings in the marketplaces, people to stop and acknowledge them. I had someone recently ask me, does it bother you that people in the church don't call you pastor? So I want to set the record straight on that this morning. Absolutely not. You can call me Pastor Jeff. You can call me Pastor. You can call me Jeff. I don't care. But I do ask that you show respect for the position. You don't have to call me Pastor Jeff, but acknowledge that, you know, hey, he is the pastor. That's the way I was raised, actually. You know, when I was raised, you called your teacher Mr. Mr. Johnson or, or Mrs. Walker or whatever it was. You said sir, you said ma'am. That's the way I was brought up. So sometimes I get a little uncomfortable, but it doesn't bother me if people don't call me pastor. But it does bother me whenever people don't show any respect for that position because this is a place God has called me, right? And it's not that the church got the pastor. It's not, um, it's not that the pastor got the church. It's that the church got the pastor, if we understand Ephesians 4. Because the pastor is for what? Equipping the saints for ministry. And because the pastor is one who looks after and takes care of the sheep, we should make sure his job is is uh, done with joy and not with grief. Again, for the record, you can call me Jeff. It's all right. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Now, if some of you just start coming up and say, Hi, Jeff. That's a little weird. Don't call me Jeffrey, because I'm going to immediately think I'm in trouble. If you really, really want to mess with me and say, Jeffrey Allen, I'll think I'm grounded. I will go to my office and cry. Okay? You're not getting to me... It's not going to get to me, but I will go to my office and cry when nobody's watching. The scribes also wanted the best seats in the synagogues. Now, sometimes people, they just want to see the prestige. Now, if you're thinking like I am when I read this, I think courtside seats. They wanted the front row, which nobody except Georgette and my daughter really wanted today. And I think Izzy would be happy to not sit in the front row. No, you, that's what we tend to think. But really, these were benches along the walls of the synagogue. They would have been cooler there, and they would have been closer to the religious artifacts, the scrolls, things like that. It would have been a seat of importance. The poor people sit in the middle of the floor where it would get hot. So they could sit off to the side. They could be a little cooler and feel a little like they had a little more authority. And they didn't just want the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted the best seats at mealtime. They wanted the, the head of the table. During lunch, they want a place of honor. Church, that's narcissism. That's not leadership. 
That's religion that repels people. If we have that in the church, it repels people from Christ. It doesn't draw people to Him. It's when the smallest amount of authority goes to somebody's head and they use that to abuse in the church. I had another pastor tell me that this guy in the church was great. They got along. They were almost best friends, him and this guy. And, and he made him the, uh, a board member. He, he said, yeah, he's running for election. We're going to put him up on the platform and, and you know, sign him in as a deacon. And, and it was like the day they did that, a switch flipped. And he said, now it's like it's his job to just fight me on everything. That's not the role of a deacon, and that's not the way it should be. That's narcissism. That's letting the, the name scribe or Pharisee go to, a he, go, to their, go to their noggin, as my dad would say, their head. It's toxic religion that elevates man, but we are to be about elevating Christ. Verse 40 says, They devour widows' houses. First read that and say, They must have a big mouth, right? They Stop it, Pastor Jeff. <clears throat> they devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. In this time, it was, and we're actually going to get a little insight into the church, early church here. You see, in this time and in this placement, it was considered improper for somebody to study the scriptures and get paid for it. It wasn't necessarily in the Jewish culture a good thing for somebody to be a teacher and get compensation. So we see this carry over and influence the New Testament church. It's one reason that Paul says the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel because they'd seen this become a snare to the Pharisees. The Pharisees would use their position to eat the widows out of house and home and take advantage of the poor. They would try to manipulate and take advantage of hospitality because they weren't being paid. And so if they wanted to get ahead financially, that's the only option many of them had. Now, some would also work as estate planners for widows. And what that would mean is if their husband had died, their kids had moved on, they would help them invest their assets, quote unquote. And a lot of times it was investing in the temple and investing in their ministries so that the scribes themselves could benefit. The widows would think they were supporting God. They would think they were supporting the temple. But the scribe was lining his pockets through the whole ordeal. So the scribes benefited. But if you notice, Jesus calls us out. He says, for appearance's sake, they would offer long prayers. Why would they do this? Because they were, they were jerks. Right? Can I say that? They were, they were scumbags. That sounds better. They were taking advantage of people. But their long prayers, look how pious I am, though. I pray for two hours a day in the synagogue. I, I teach the, the, this. I don't ask for any money. And if a widow opens her house to me and she happens to have a full fridge and it's empty when I'm gone, who cares? Right? Look how pious I am. Look how good, how spiritual I can be. Their piety was a cover for their wolvish appetites. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 2. When he's addressing false prophets, when he's talking about false teachers, the wolves who would infest the church, he says in their greed they will exploit you with false words. But he says they try to appear righteous. The idea of taking advantage of, of the widows also carries forward in the church. Paul warns Timothy to honor the widows 
because men were coming in and they were taking advantage of them. Other men, Christian men, supposedly Christian men, toxic Christian men were doing this. And to the point, some of the widows had rejected Christ entirely because that's what they do. That's their toxic religion at work within them. It's a God of self, self-pleasure, self-desire, self-worship. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt in the process. It's a man-centered theology. We would call it meology. Now to contrast this, Jesus is going to shift gears and he's going to begin talking about a very unlikely source. He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. Now Jesus would have been able to see into this area. He had been in Solomon's portico and the women's area of the court was actually open to the whole public and so he could sit down and position himself so that he could look in and if you remember from, from a study long ago we did, uh, the, these receptacles, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles in the temple. And when people wanted to give, they would come in and they would drop their coins loudly so that they were sounding the trumpet. Remember, anybody remember that series? Okay, if you forgot it, it's all right, I've slept since then too. But Jesus addresses this in Matthew 6. He says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. This is what he's referring to. These people were coming in and they were giving out of their abundance and they were dropping the coins so people would notice how much they gave. Again, look at their piety. Look at how righteous they are. Look at how giving they are. They're, self, they're giving out of self-gratification. The Sadducees, by the way, and the Pharisees, this is probably another reason Jesus kind of hones in on the scribes because he's already picked on those other two enough. And their theology is going to be touched by what he says in this passage because the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife, but they believed if they gave, if they followed enough rules, God would bless them in this life. Prosperity gospel. Right? It's the same thing. Give, plant your seed money. That sort of thing. And, and God will bless you because he wants you to have a good life. Because there is no life after this. The Pharisees believed the same thing. Even though they believed in a life afterwards, they could cash in now. And so if we give and we give and we, we do all the right things, that's legalism, that's the toxic religion at work, then when we sound the trumpet, everyone will know how good we are and how much God has blessed us because they equated wealth, the surplus of wealth, with God's blessing. It was only the poor who would obviously be under God's punishment because they were wicked, they were poor. And then who walks in? And who disrupts this entire thing? But a little widow. A poor widow came and put in two lepta, which amount to a quadrant. Now some people read this, and they think that it, when the Bible says a penny, because some translations say a penny, some say a cent, it's actually the Roman version of that. It's not an actual cent in American uh, currency. But this woman was the exact person that the scribes would feed on, that they would take advantage of. And she comes in, and Jesus sees her, and she had to have given in a way to draw his attention while everyone else was slamming the coins in or dropping them so they would clang. This woman, she probably didn't have to dig too far in her pocket to pull out her two coins and drop them in and keep moving. And that had to have drawn Christ's attention that day. He drops in these two lepta. 
And the lepta actually means a skinning. You ever hear the phrase, by the skin of your teeth? That's kind of what she's giving that day. The very last that she's got. And like I said, some translations say a cent or a penny. But it's not a, an American penny. It actually would be about uh, a little less than $2 in today's American currency. About $1.87. I'm not a mathematician, so don't, don't quote me on that. But that's about what I came to as I studied it. Less than $2. And that's all she's going to have. Verses 43 and 44. And calling his disciples to him, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those putting money into the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. This woman gave her last couple of bucks knowing she, she may not get another source of income. She may not be able to buy anything else. And what's she going to be able to buy with that anyway? It's not like they had a vending machine in the temple, right? To go get a Coke and, and then there she's done until payday. It's not like that. You know, as Jesus calls the disciples to himself privately, this is a private conversation. This isn't for the rest of the crowd to hear. Not yet. He's done shaming the scribes more than he already has. And what's he point out? This woman gave all she had. Even though they gave much, she gave more. She's not going to be able to eat again until she has more money. And like I said, she's not planting her seed money. She's not investing, hoping to get more in return. She's not giving to receive. She's giving because she genuinely loves the Lord with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, all her strength. She's living out the greatest commandment that Jesus had just covered in our message last week. She gave because she gave out of a heart that was fully devoted to him. It wasn't to please herself or to please someone else. It was to please the Father who sees what's done in secret and done as an act of worship. She's giving God to God what belongs to God. The message of this text is very simple. It's that we have to understand the why behind our actions of obedience to God. You know, there's nothing wrong with long prayers. There's nothing wrong with wearing a long robe. Well, in this society, maybe, if you're out in public. Some of you will get that later. There's nothing wrong with some of the things the scribes were doing, but it was their intention behind it that Jesus had the problem with. Because they liked the greetings. They liked the kudos. They liked, if we can be real, they liked the worship that came from it. And that's the problem. When we do something and as an act of obedience, the question becomes, why do I do that? Why do I give an offering? Is it so that God can bless me with more? Or because God has already blessed me and I want to thank Him and I want to worship Him? Maybe, maybe what we want to do is, is worship God in a way to get something not necessarily monetary. Maybe I don't really want a new Corvette like I joked about earlier because I really don't. I'm happy with my Toyota Corolla missing all three hubcaps. I'm all right with that. But maybe sometimes I, I come to church and I worship because I want a, another good feeling. I want a mountaintop experience. Or maybe we don't want an emotional experience, but a true spiritual one. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But why? Why do we want that? Is it for me to feel good or is it for, for the kingdom to be built? For Christ to be glorified? Because if we do it out of a selfish reason or a reason to please man, even if it's a spiritual way, we do it so we give or we perform, then it's toxic and it's religion. It's something that hinders us. It doesn't grow us closer to Christ. The mature Christian, when we understand truly what that means, we don't chase after mountaintop after mountaintop experiences. We're just happy to be on the mountain because we know who resides there with us. Amen? Toxic religion says, look how far I've made it, how far I've come, how good I have it, how good God's been to me. The true Christian says in humble faith, why are you even looking at me? Look at Christ. Look how good He is. Look how great my God is. Because it's in Him and only in Him can there be true life. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We're going to move to close shortly, but next week we're starting a new series, like I said, titled Things to Come. And there's a fancy word for that, for the study of such things. It's called eschatology study of the eschaton, the, the end of time. But the truth is, we may not make it to that. I had a good friend. His wife actually texted me this past week and said, could you please pray for our church? A lady my age, about my age, just dropped dead suddenly. No idea. Nobody knew anything was wrong. She didn't have cancer. No heart problems. Nothing. Just boom. Dead one. In our own community, I did not know that the priest in town was 49 years old. That's not much older than me. And one day he's walking across the street, and the next day he has a stroke. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. And I don't say that to, to try to emotional, you know, conjure up emotion or anything like that or manipulate. I'm just telling you the truth. This passage we looked at comes from the last week of Jesus' life. Soon in our text, he's going to be nailed to a cross for an atonement, as an atonement for our sin. And he's going to die so we can be free from our sin. Not that we can be free to continue to live in it, but free from it. That we can have an opportunity to repent, to turn from it, and to turn to him. And if you've not done that today, or you're watching online and you've not done that, today would be a great day to turn to Christ, to make him your king, your Lord of your life. And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what? I've been practicing what you're calling toxic religion. And it's killing me. And it's hurting those around me. Today's a day of repentance. And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what? I haven't been doing that, but I have veered off the right path. I've lost my first love. I need to get back to a deeper, intimate relationship with Christ, with the truth of who he is. And if that's you, today's a good day for that as well. We're going to sing, and I would challenge you, go ahead and stand if you will. We're going to close in worship. And as we sing, as we worship today, ask the Holy Spirit, where am I at? What's the purpose behind my actions? Am I doing this to please me or to please Christ? Because that's the reason we really worship. For the Lord.